I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Security tools are essential in helping tackle vulnerabilities in the cloud. Liz Rice, technology evangelist at Aqua Security, explained the capabilities of security tools, vulnerability reports, and the process of deploying security patches. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to give a shout out to one of our listeners from Brazil, Ariana Adrat. Ariana just launched Mulheres da Engenharia, which in Portuguese means Women of Engineering, and it's a podcast in Portuguese. If you speak Portuguese, check it out at mulheresdaengenharia.com. The first episode is about blockchain. I understood part of it because I speak Spanish. So I highly recommend it. Check it out. Liz Rice, technology evangelist at Aqua Security and co-chair of KubeCon, is joining us today. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. And I saw you a lot at KubeCon in Copenhagen and it was great. You gave a keynote and you were also hosting several panels. Yeah. So I just want to start with some of your takeaways and trends that you saw at this event. So I guess as, uh, you know, one of the organizers, if you like, as, as co-chair, I'd probably get a, a slightly biased view of what's going on. I think one of the things that was really prominent and that I heard over and over again was the sense of community and um, how this whole kind of Kubernetes cloud native world is, is really, it's building up a lot of momentum now. Mm -hmm. And not only do we have this amazing kind of developer community and, um, you know, all the people who are supporting the development of the products themselves, but now we're also seeing a lot of end users and those end users are also engaging with the community, which is fantastic because everybody's benefiting from that. Yes, I totally agree with you. I saw this sense of community. I went there to talk with people and for this podcast and do some press coverage. I'm not a user of Kubernetes, but I talked to several people and even not directly talking to them. For example, I saw this person approach someone else because they had a in their badge that they use Prometheus or something. Uh -huh. And he was like, oh, can I talk to you about this? My company's trying to do X and Y. And the other person was like, sure, let's go over here and chat. And I had never seen this in another yeah. conference. So that's fantastic, I think. It's great. I mean, we had uh, one of the keynotes was Dave Zolotowski from Spotify. And he was talking about how, you know, he had reached out to Prometheus and asked for help and, and been really surprised that the Prometheus people were, were kind of interested in his problems. And I thought, but you're Spotify. You know, everybody would be really excited if like, you know, to hear that Spotify is using their code, I'm sure. But it's really nice to see that kind of engagement and that sort of sharing of experiences. You know, there was a lot of that going on and, and I'm so proud that that was happening. You know, it's really good. And you've worked in software engineering, and right now you're technology evangelist in Aqua Security. And you've also explored this area of systems software engineering. So for those that aren't very familiar with this area, can you just describe what it consists of? Yeah, so I guess for the last four-ish years or so, I've been really focused on the world of containers. 
and for those who haven't come across containers before, a way of, if you like, packaging up, distributing, running software in a way so that you can, well, you can have the software and all its dependencies packaged up into to an image. So you can run the same piece of software from the same image on your laptop, in the cloud, you know, in test, in production. Um, you could be running identical images and that's turns out to be a huge benefit, goes really hand in hand with microservice architectures, goes hand in hand with orchestration systems like Kubernetes. And um, yeah, I've been kind of involved in that for, as I say, probably the last four years or so. And for the last 18 months or so, I've been concentrating very much on security related to containers. So you're saying part of this system software engineering involves looking at ways of packaging and distributing applications. Yeah, I suppose if we think about what system software engineering is, it's less about the kind of application, about the sort of business-specific functions, and more about the infrastructure that those applications run on and providing the kind of abstractions so that if you're writing an application for a business, you can rely on the software that's going to connect bits of your components together and, and distribute them and allow them to access things like databases or messaging or many different components that might go up to make a whole system. At KubeCon, we had Maya Kaczorowski on the show and she gave an overview of containers and security. And this is also your focus at the moment. So I want to ask you, through your time in this field, what are some examples of vulnerabilities that you have seen can be present in containers? <laughs> Just a couple. Yeah. Interesting ones. Yeah. I mean, there's been like really high profile things like a Spectre and Meltdown, which, you know, are super low level vulnerabilities that in the end allow a container to sort of escape or allow a process to escape its container and, and run on the host system. So things like that really you know, shake people up. And it's interesting that, you know, you get things like that that are at such a low level and that have such a wide impact. At the other end, a lot of the things that I'm really interested in are how really just by using sort of the wrong defaults, we end up leading people down a path that is insecure. We've seen like Tesla, for example, had uh, essentially an open dashboard to their Kubernetes cluster, which then allowed an attacker to get in and, and from their breach. I think there were also some, some security credentials available to them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comes about because the default setting, this has been changed now, but the default setting was to leave that open. And we used to have the API, like the main Kubernetes API port would be insecure by default. I did a keynote at KubeCon about how when you run a container, by default, you're running as root. And I think there's a lot of interesting things around how we use insecure defaults because it's easy to set up. And then actually that can come back to bite us. And, and perhaps, you know, particularly people in, in the sort of systems engineering world, we need to be thinking about making it really easy for the people using our software to keep it secure. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we talked earlier about community and another thing that I saw that you talked about in the past is the sense of community can also bite us because we are putting ourselves out there, our names are out there on what we're working on. And what you've seen is sometimes people put their contact information in config files that then end up being available. Can you explain 
security implications in this case? Yeah, so the classic thing is that someone will put like a password, you know, maybe you're you're building a container that's going to access a database and you might include passwords or, or tokens or other credentials. Or your email, right? Yeah, or well, yes, and then email addresses are even more kind of you know, on the one hand, a lot of the time people's email addresses are pretty public. You know, we, yeah. we give out our email addresses pretty frequently. But on the other hand, if you work for a, a big organization and an attacker wants to, uh, you know, break into your organization and they look up your container images, they find your email address and they can potentially use that to go phishing and, uh, you know, maybe try to do some kind of social engineering on you. It's not so much that um, I wouldn't say nobody should ever give out their email address, but I do think people need to be a little bit careful about when the, you know, where they leave their email address lying about. And when you know your email address is in the public domain, you've got to be a little bit careful about reacting to everything that people send you, you know, in exactly the same way that you don't click on a, an email that pretends to be from your bank. You, know, you have to be a little bit careful about emails that pretend to be from your, I don't know, your security department in your large corporation. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we've been talking about a few of the vulnerabilities that we might encounter. I want to switch gears now, since you're working at Aqua Security, to talk about some of the security tools that are available for us when developing applications and putting them on the cloud. Yeah, so we very much focus on um, security tooling for container deployments, but there's quite a lot of different pieces to that puzzle from vulnerability scanning, so making sure that you're not running with known vulnerabilities in your code, things like, you know, Heartbleed or Meltdown, you know, that kind of thing. We do tooling around policy management. So you might have image policies. I'm only going to run images that come from this particular registry and I need them to meet certain criteria and maybe they need to be built from one of a, a, a few base images. You might have um, your, it kind of allows you to, to shift the idea of security earlier in, into the pipeline so that security isn't like an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And then the stuff that I get really kind of excited about is runtime protection. And one of the things that you can do, particularly if you've got a microservice architecture, is it becomes a much more um, sort of tangible problem to say, what should this microservice do? Even all the error cases, we should be able to know things like what files it should be allowed to access, what executables it's allowed to run, what network traffic it's allowed to send and receive. And we can use that to say, well, if it does, if the code inside this container starts to do something outside of those expected behaviors, perhaps that's a sign it's been compromised. And that can be really, really powerful. It's kind of really quite exciting. Well, to me, I found it really exciting when I first saw like, oh, wow, you know, they can lock down, you know, so for example, maybe you have a container that has a whole load of executables in it. And we can actually say, no, you can only run this subset of executables. You can't run let's say, tools that a hacker might use to try to explore the network like ping, we're just going to prevent that from running. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty powerful. And what is the way to implement this runtime protection? Is this, I'm imagining it as a config file where you add these options or how does this work? 
Yeah, so there's a few different ways of doing it depending on the tooling you're using. If you're using like Aqua's commercial product, then we have a a UI that essentially helps you to learn, well, helps you to profile so that the system can learn what your different container images do. And then you can manipulate the configuration. Um, You can export it and import it in kind of JSON files. Other kinds of runtime protection that you might see are things like AppArmor and SetComp profiles and SE Linux, which let's take SetComp as an example. It's a way of saying, I am going to limit this, well, container in this case, to only be allowed to do a certain set of system calls. So really quite at a low level interfacing with the operating system. You can control, for example, whether it's allowed to do um, file write, reading and writing or not. That can be pretty powerful and on the one hand pretty complex, but um, but it's pretty powerful as well. And you'll see kind of JSON files with the configuration for things like SetComp and, and AppArmor and some standard ones that people will use for particular applications. Mm-hmm. So the tool makes it easier through a UI and then you can visualize like you said, what things are doing what. Yeah, the Aqua tool does, yeah. One of the other tools that I saw, which you mentioned earlier, is for scanning. There's this microscanner tool that scans for vulnerabilities. So I'm curious, how do you obtain those lists of vulnerabilities? Is there a database or does the community just put it out there? Yeah, yeah. So sort of, basic set of information is a thing called the NVD, National Vulnerability Database. And it's like a central repository of vulnerabilities and the software packages that they're contained in. And that's a a good starting point. What actually happens, though, is that the different Linux distributions quite often have made patches. So the set of vulnerable versions that are listed on the NVD might not be the same as a set of vulnerable versions in your particular distribution. If you're using a Debian distribution, it might have patches. And so your scanner needs to know about the Debian patching as well as the the NVD list. So there are basic vulnerability scanners that just use that NVD database. And it's a good start, but you do tend to get quite a lot of false positives. And more sophisticated scanners will look at things like the security advisories from different Linux distributions, different languages. So things like Ruby, for example, they've got their own um, advisories about vulnerabilities in different Ruby. I can't remember what they call them, gems? Yeah, I think it's gems. Yeah. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, as an example of another kind of source, quite often vendors will have their own advisories about which versions have which different vulnerabilities. So the more of these different sources of information about which versions have vulnerabilities, then the more accurate your scan will be. Mm -hmm. Yes. In the past, I've talked about false positives, particularly in the healthcare sense, where it's really crucial to not have them. For example, if a person is a false positive for cancer, they're going to end up getting treatment for cancer when they didn't really need to. So that's a big impact. In this case, what is the effect of the false positive in the scanner? Is it you're spending resources trying to fix something that you don't really need? or 
Yeah, what it tends to be is if you get a lot of false positives, it's like the boy crying wolf. You know, people just get immune to seeing all these you know, positive results, checking them out, realizing that don't actually apply because they're using a different distribution or there's some kind of combination of libraries that means this particular vulnerability doesn't affect them. And they do this over and over and over again. And after a while they get bored and then there's a danger that they miss when a you know a really significant vulnerability comes along. I see. And I want to talk a little bit more about this area of the patches in traditional deployments, one of the responsibilities of the people working in security is to make sure these servers have those security patches. How has this changed now with the shift to DevOps? Yeah, so imagine you're running, you know, maybe you were running with, say, order of 10 virtual machines or, or even physical machines, and that was plausible to go and patch those machines by hand. Now you might be running thousands of container instances across those 10 machines and each of those container instances has its own set of dependencies so it could have its own you know requirements for patching and they might even be different in different containers so there's no way that this is a, this can be dealt with manually it, it's just too big of a problem so the sort of initial fear from security people will be like this is just crazy how can we possibly stay on top of this patching plus your containers are under an orchestrator like kubernetes you don't really have any control you can have some control but generally speaking you don't know where your code's going to run so how do you even know where to apply those patches and the answer is basically don't try and do anything manually. Use automation. Use your CI/CD pipeline. Whenever you need to apply a patch, you rebuild the container image with that new patch included and you roll out new containers based on the newly built image. And that way you're kind of always keeping yourself up to date or at least your containerized deployment is up to date with your build and your build is automatically pulling in patches as you find out about them from a scanner. That's the kind of best practice in new CICD-based world. And like you're saying, you're getting a brand new container, right? Exactly, yeah. So it's really very much best practice to not modify a container once it's been deployed. You can do it. It's possible to kind of, for example, get a shell into a container and install software inside it. But for production, it, that's really not considered good practice because you end up with drift between what your kind of original deployment was and what you've now got running. What we really want to see in a DevOps style environment is everything reproducible. So you have scripts, you know, you have code that you can run to reproduce your environment and to reproduce the container images and the containers themselves. Yeah, so that if anything needs to be killed or, you know, maybe there's a fault, maybe a, a server goes down, well, you know, too bad. Well, we'll just bring up another server and we can deploy all the right software. In fact, it will be done automatically for you through your tooling like Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. So automation is your friend. And another important component in this security pipeline is generating a vulnerability report or communicating what the issues are to the users and the systems engineers. What is the type of information that can go in a vulnerability report? Right. 
So vulnerabilities tend to be categorized by severity. There's a couple of different, well, there's like a, a version two and a version three of the kind of scoring system, but they'll be kind of low, medium, high. And in, in the version three, they also have critical severity. So that's the most important thing you're going to get from a vulnerability report. It'll tell you how many high, medium, low issues there are. And you might want to have a policy that says, actually, you know, we'll, we'll not worry about any low severity issues, but anything that's medium or maybe anything that's high, that's going to fail the build. You can put this into your CICD pipeline so you can actually fail the build or it's already been built, but you fail the pipeline, if you like, because of the detection of vulnerabilities. I see. And then also a vulnerability report will typically tell you the details of each individual vulnerability. They all have these identifiers called CVEs. You might get some information in the report itself, or you might have to go and look them up to find out, you know, what's the impact of this particular vulnerability? Will it, you know, is it something that I really need to worry about? And sometimes on a sort of case by case basis, people decide either they don't think the risk is significant or that it doesn't really apply to them because sometimes software, sometimes vulnerabilities are only exploitable if some other circumstance is true, like some other library is also present, for example. And so sometimes people can actually take a judgment and say, even though this vulnerability is here, it doesn't apply to us. Would that also be given by the scanner where the scanner detects a vulnerability, but then because you don't have this other particular version of a library, then you're not really at risk or? It depends on the sophistication of the scanner. Okay, I see. I guess another example of something often shows is if a scanner looks at containers are built up of layers and you could have a layer that includes a vulnerability and then another layer that replaces or removes the code that had that vulnerability so you want to know that your scanner is going to take into account the kind of the final result and not any of these intermediate layers before we finish i want to talk about startups i saw that you've worked at several startups some of them that have succeeded some of them have failed what were some of the difference that you noticed between startups that succeeded and failed, I know there can be many reasons for succeeding and failing, but I was just curious what you observed while you were there. Yeah, I think the biggest difference is almost always on the business side. In my experience, you know, the startups that are doing well, everybody sort of knows, you know, some kind of romantic story about a startup that, you know, basically built something, gave it away for free, and it became worth a lot of money. I worked for Skype for a long time. And, and um, you know, that that's an example of a startup that did exactly that. But most, most startups, you know, that's kind of the exception that proves the rules. Startups essentially need to remember that they're businesses and they need to make money. And I think a lot of us who are more on the technical side will not necessarily recognize how important that that sort of business development, the sales side of the business really is and if that's not in place I mean it's really interesting to me coming to Aqua where we have this incredibly well-oiled machine of sort of the sales team and all the sort of support and mechanisms around that and uh, as somebody who hadn't worked for a long time in a company that really knew how to sell to enterprises I'm like ah that's where we did it wrong okay (laughs) yes so it wasn't really about oh we didn't execute 
fast enough and things like that. Your experience was this thinking of this monetization component to keep the wheels running. Yeah, exactly. And executing on that business side, on the money side. I mean, timing is also incredibly important. I think businesses that happen to be providing the right product, but at the wrong time are just unfortunately, you know, they're doomed to failure. Most startups fail. It's a fact of life, really. Mm -hmm. Speaking of keeping wheels running, you participate in bicycle races with Team Fearless. <laughs> yeah. What is your training process like for this? So Fearless is actually, um, we're a, an online team and we, we're actually a racing team in a sort of virtual reality cycling environment called Zwift and um, Zwift is one of those things where like for cyclists it's actually becoming really quite well known and for the rest of the community they're like what you sit inside and you ride on a trainer and um, <laughs> so I now have a pretty nice setup I've got my bike on a trainer the trainer's connected to computer the you're sort of in this virtual world and um, if you're going up a hill the trainer is sort of slowed down by technology by swift and um, you can see all the other people in the same race you can get drafting effect from them and there's like people thousands of people participating in this all around the world and i've been lucky enough to participate in a couple of kind of in real life races where people who, you know, will compete on Zwift and then we've done, um, well, I've, I've been lucky enough to go to a couple of World Cup events where we go to a physical venue, ride our bikes in virtual reality, but we're all on exactly calibrated equipment and uh, it's really good fun. Oh, that's awesome. It's great. And for the virtual reality one, do you have to go to a specific place or do you wear some glasses or something? No, so you're seeing it on your computer, but it's really quite immersive. You get like a kind of a first person view or you can change the kind of camera view so you can see like overhead shots or like what's behind you or like a sweeping camera going past you and you can customize what you're wearing so fearless we've got our sort of yellow kit you can see all these people around the world you know where they are you know how much power out they're putting out it's good fun you can chat with them while you're online it's amazing that's pretty cool do you prefer that experience more over the real yeah so my favorite thing is being outside on a beautiful day with no traffic but I live in London right okay. so quite often we don't have great weather and we have pretty awful traffic <laughs> so uh, you yeah. know on a good day outside that's the best but uh, yeah inside on with maybe chatting with you know some of my teammates that's pretty good <laughs> yeah that's great that with technology you have a pretty good alternative yeah yeah well Liz thank you for taking the time to come on the show it's been really great talking to you oh thanks so much thanks for having me 